0: Hello, I'm Ella Brady, and you're listening to the U-E podcast. This week, I spoke with Dr. Robert Nelson from the University of Richmond. Dr. Nelson is the director of the university's Digital Scholarship Lab and the editor of American Panorama, an atlas of United States history. In this episode, we discuss one of the projects included in American Panorama titled Mapping Inequality, Redlining in New Deal America. Could you start by giving us a quick introduction, maybe where are you located in the world right now? Uh,
1: My office, as I am in a t-shirt all the time. I'm Rob Nelson. Um, I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Yes, in this room that I just have been living in for the last year.
0: Wonderful. Me too. Um, So you're the director of the Digital Scholarship Lab at the University of Richmond. So could you tell us a little bit more about the work that the lab pursues?
1: Yeah, so it's a very small uh, digital humanities center. It's the University of Richmond is uh, not a small liberal arts college, but it is a liberal arts college. We have about 3,500 undergraduates and We've got kind of an unusual office uh, or center at the Digital Scholarship Lab because it's um, in some ways kind of more akin to a digital humanities center you might find at an R1 institution than one that you'd find at a liberal arts institution. So, uh, what we do is um, what a lot of digital humanities uh, centers do is we try and do interesting <laughs> digital humanities work. And I guess there's kind of a niche that we have. So, we're not a project. Or excuse me, we're not a tool-oriented uh, lab, so we don't uh, maintain kind of general-purpose tools, and that's not what we're we do. We do more uh, focused projects on particular topics, uh, and in particular, our our biggest project for past several years has been an atlas of U.S. history uh, called American Panorama, which is um, you know it's a project that is trying to think about the genre of the historical atlas and think about what you can do uh when you're doing this not in print but doing this digitally uh and and uh you know the kind of affordances and possibilities when you can have not uh, a series of print maps uh showing a phenomena over time but have data rich interactive maps and out of american panorama by far the biggest uh and most impactful project that we've done to date is uh mapping inequality which is a, a project that's focused on the infamous redlining maps that were produced by the Homo Zone Corporation in the
0: 1930s. Absolutely. Thank you. So you are a historian who also codes. Um, uh, What is your relationship to cartography and GIS yourself? Uh, Yeah, I feel like I'm
1: still a map maker. So uh, I, I should say a little bit about my staff so on my staff uh is justin Madron, who's our gis analyst and uh like i uh i think i would be lost if i opened up arc i don't remember the last time i opened up arc um so i am not and we are not uh making any claims to be uh doing like sophisticated spatial analysis that you might do in arc we're making maps and i and we we're really lean on i think the humanistic side of. Of, uh, of mapping and cartography and, and data visualization which is not to um, like we're not bad we're not trying to be bad social scientists and we're not trying to uh, do spatial analysis so we're trying to use maps as a means of doing data storytelling a uh, and b as a uh, as a visualization tool to let people um, explore where they are or some phenom- some aspect of history that they're interested in through the maps. And so mapping inequality is a great example of that because the, one of the reasons we wanted to do mapping inequality with uh, a number of partners at other universities, which I should mention as well, um, was because we realized uh, that uh, you know, people in Syracuse would be interested in, I can look at the map of Syracuse, but I can't read it uh in any kind of meaningful way because I don't A know the history of Syracuse and I don't really have a great sense of the geography of Syracuse, but people in Syracuse do, right? And and opening these up so that it's not just a that is obviously a national data set. And there's been some great work using it as a spatial data set. Um to look at things like uh heat islands and uh look at health disparities and their relationship to Pass racist policies, on the but the other side of that is just people digging in not on like the two hundred maps but the one map that they are interested in the, the one map of the place that they live in and the one map uh, uh, that visualizes the landscapes of uh, privilege and uh, vulnerability that tends you know is re- usually in most places. I've kind of actually yet to find the place where like that map didn't resonate today, right? That these these maps really have a, 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 a resonance and uh, spark conversations about the kind of calcification of privilege and vulnerability in certain places in individual cities over decades. And so that's one of the things we wanted to do with this project for sure.
0: Absolutely. I guess I have a question about what your intended impact was and you talked about it. Is this sort of the studies that have come out and the people that have used it? Is that what you expected, intended for, or was it open to interpretation?
1: I wish I could say we intended it. I mean, we knew this was an important data set, which is why we we uh, we you know immediately released it and uh we, we knew I think we released it before we released the project, but people had kind of reached out to us and gotten I don't know, word through the grapevine that we were we were uh producing this uh data set. And so we shared it with some economists at the Fed who have a really pretty interesting paper on um the impact of the maps on shaping, you know, wealth inequalities over uh at least a half century uh time period. Um, but I would I'm I'm just not um I don't know, uh I'm not bright enough. I don't know. I'm not or not uh you know I, I didn't see it was going to be used for these environmental purposes i mean i don't I don't think uh, particularly the great use that's been made of the maps by uh people working in the sciences um, that was not something I think we'd anticipated um so people working on health disparities uh, in public health, people working on uh environmental disparities, whether that be uh, heat island street canopies which are related to one another or uh uh, Inequities in and exposures to pollution. I, I, I think we we quickly learned that. I mean, I, I, within the first two months of releasing it, I think I got contacted by two different groups, both working on disparities in uh, exposure to lead paint amongst children. And so I think we kind of quickly realized this is going to be interesting to people that aren't in our discipline. But I don't think we quite realized i didn't realize that i mean if that's that's been a wonderful surprise by this and so um i mean to talk, talking to you and, and any number of opportunities i've had to talk with audiences uh this year is um it's only because other people have done really interesting work on it so i have like a couple of examples i gave a talk at the EPA uh last month and uh, a couple of weeks ago i did something for flood awareness week and it's it's not as if i'm any expert. I am far from an expert in anything environmental and particularly anything flood. I did more thinking about floods that week than I ever have or probably ever will again. And and it's only because other people are doing interesting work on that that I'm kind of called in called into these conversations which is just a joy to participate in, but to think about um these contemporary issues, these contemporary inequalities, uh and their uh their Relationship, which is complicated, to past racist policies, uh, urban policies, housing policies, um, and so that—that's been amazing. It's just to come see other people do amazing work uh, with this, and then I feel really lucky to be in and involved in conversations that I just wouldn't have anticipated being involved in at, at all. When you know, five years ago, the thought that I'd be giving a talk at the EPA or giving a talk—I was part of a toxicology uh uh speaker series at duke and it's like everything else was like i didn't even understand what the titles in the series other <laughs> things been and, and me and a colleague were giving us talk about mapping inequality in relationship to uh, environmental inequities and that's been kind of amazing uh just to uh, and and it's not in that respect we're really fortunate i mean i i i think we um it's good to give away your data. That's one thing we have definitely yeah. learned, and it is, uh, uh, and it's just produced work that we just we're just grateful it's gotten produced and and uh, and, and really involved us in some conversations, which uh, we're just grateful to be a part of.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's something that I wanted to explore is, so obviously, um, as planners, we're not exactly uh, historians, but there is history involved. So in terms of digital scholarship and the work that you're doing, what's the best way to sort of get acclimated to this kind of work if you're not a practitioner of it?
1: It could be like as a uh, as a producer of this kind of work or as a consumer of this kind of work. And as a both, consumer. Okay, as a consumer. Um Uh, well, okay. So one thing we've, I think there's two sides of the consumer part, even with mapping inequality. So one is just going to mapping inequality and exploring. And I think that is, uh, uh, it just important to explore this history, right? This is just a window into, uh, into these past racist policies that could be pretty, pretty shocking and jaw dropping. Even to me after spending 10 years with them, I will run across something that's uh, you know, so baldly racist and offensive that it will and and, or and just and is so revealing of the of like for lack of a better term, systemic racism, um, that it will uh you know shock me. And um the fact that I we have students of all ages going to map inequality and and learning about this history is uh we're you know, we're just grateful that the the project is getting used in that way. So we'll have sixth graders that come in and are learning about redlining as as twelve year olds, and and uh, you know, that's it's uh, we feel very fortunate as being uh, being used in classrooms at all levels and and having an impact on uh, in, a, in a number of classrooms uh, and and introducing younger and younger audiences to this important history. Uh, I'm also grateful like uh, the kinds of uh, impact it's potentially it has for, say, people doing housing advocacy, you know, affordable housing advocacy or just any kind of um, social justice work at a local level. It's uh, just throwing up that map and and showing, as I think I've used the term before, the calcification, but the persistence of certain. Inequities across time is a really pretty powerful persuasion tool, and I'm always grateful when when people are able to use it uh, use it for that. And it's more and more getting used by uh, by policymakers to do the same thing. So there's um, the Iowa uh, the Iowa House uh, legislative house, house house and their legislature passed a uh, a law recently that would give tax uh tax uh relief to people who lived in formerly red-lined or yellow-lined neighborhoods to do improvements on their house so it's a kind of form of economic preparations in a kind of modest way with that and i, I don't think that's gone through their senate but that would be the first example i know where there's actual laws that are going to be rooted in. the uh, in the maps themselves. So um, so, there, people are just kind of using the maps as maps. And then the other side of the consumption is uh, is people that are, you know, maybe not spend that much time on mapping and quality besides the hit download shapefile or download GeoJSON and taking that data and then repurposing it in, in interesting ways, whether that be, uh, I mean, the, the, I think the most impactful and uh i blows my mind but my, mind, my most impressive piece of research is the one on heat islands that uh, jeremy Hoffman and vivek shandis uh and others uh did but there's uh work that's been done on flooding i mentioned that, that that's recently there was some really good work on uh, by redfin uh looking at the correlations between flooding and uh redlining there's a i think it was a week or two ago there was a a study on uh, stroke incidences are higher uh, in red line neighborhoods than they are in green line to blue line neighborhoods. Um, So there's and that's um, one thing I'm pretty proud of. And I think I I think the project does well is it uh, it can be used by that sixth grader who obviously doesn't most sixth graders don't really have great cartography skills, but they can, you know, they can start to read a map and start to explore this history. And, but then on the other side, the, uh, the raw spatial materials that we produced and used in mapping inequality can be taken. And then interesting research that, you know, just kind of outside of our area of expertise and that, um, you know, I'm, I'm all kind of constantly blown away by, um, by the new kinds of work, whether that be on the environment, whether that be on uh, food disparities, whether that be on gerrymandering, whether that be on health disparities, um, that there's so much interesting work looking at these uh, correlations between past and present. Um, Yeah, it's Good give away your data. Yeah, and and, and, I, and I can't. I don't know which one it's actually gotten has more impact. No. Uh, to be to be honest, I mean it gets quite a bit of traffic, and so I know a lot of people are using Map inequality, no Equality, but uh, I think it's arguably has more impact through uh, through work um, that other people have done using the data sets.
0: Absolutely. The so one thing that you mentioned was the shocking things that you find, and I. As, as a student um, have pursued some of these things, but could you just tell us a little bit about what maybe was unexpected in doing this work and looking at the maps?
1: Uh, I mean, when I first, so I started looking at the, I, I should back up and say that I'm not a, uh, I'm more and more working as an urban historian or a historian of American cities, uh, but that was not my background. I'm a 19th century. by training. And I used, to, and I still kind of occasionally uh, still work on, slavery and anti-slavery. So uh, I kind of got into this and got interested in these maps really more through the kind of public uh, history side of it. Um, uh, A really dear friend of mine, uh, John Measer, who's a professor emeritus from Virginia Commonwealth University. In 2008, he and I were having lunch and uh, he pitched, "I I should do something with the Richmond Hulk map. And I hadn't spent... I'm not positive I spent any time looking at the area descriptions, and uh, so I got back to my office and I started doing a little research on this. He shared some of the materials his one of his students had collected at uh, at the National Archive, and I was uh, you know I was like my first jaw dropping moment. So in Richmond, uh, there's a neighborhood called Bird Park, uh, which is a white neighborhood in the 19th and uh, sorry in the 1930s. Uh, and, it was, and it was next to a black neighborhood uh, called Randolph. Uh, Randolph was redlined, uh, and Bird Park was yellowlined. And there's a, a clarifying remark, and I'm probably going to butcher this a tiny bit. This is almost a quote, and it, and it says that this uh, this area is uh, there's a grave drop in this area because uh, they, I'm well, I'm not quoting that well, but the African Americans from uh, from D8. Which is Randolph, pass back and forth for access to Williamburg Park, which lies to the west. Uh, for that reason, losses on property are being taken. And so to summarize that basically, this area didn't get the higher grade, not because there were African American residents, but because there were African American pedestrians that and the kids, the white kids had to walk into D8 to go to school. And uh, like free me, my job just dropped because it's so I mean, so baldly racist, obviously. And I kind of I knew a little bit about redlining. I knew this was a racist policy that targeted and denied uh, neighborhoods of color access to capital. But I didn't realize quite how uh, how upfront they were about this because there is no there's no subtext. There's no racial subtext. There's just racist text in these things. Um, And that continues. I'll give you one other example. Um, And this is the examples I'm using. Actually, kind of telling about like. The, uh, focusing on the places that you live and care about. So uh, this is an example from Tacoma, Washington, which is uh, where I went to undergraduate. That's what I did to, went to college at the University of Puget Sound. And there's an area just a few blocks away. It's a neighborhood called the Proctor District, and it's a it was graded most of it was graded blue, and then uh, it was they carved out this little area about three uh, just three blocks by two blocks, and they gave that a they redlined it, gave it a D neighborhood. And the explanation, they say, this is this is identical in all respects to the surrounding neighborhood because it's the same neighborhood. It's not, it's not a different neighborhood. And But they say there are three Black families um, and very much above the average of the race on um, Verde Street. And for that reason, it seriously detracts from the desirability of the immediate neighborhood, right? And so like, there's three Black families there. And that means that this whole area, like these houses are identical to the houses around them. It's part of the same neighborhood. But this this area is being micro-targeted as being a place that is a bad vestment because of three middle-class Black families living in the area. And so, I mean, you constantly see these things. I mean, and, and so there's just... Um, I am a little inured to it, I suppose, after ten years. Uh, but you can take your pick of, obviously, this. There's, um, there's, all almost with just so few exceptions, they are the exception that proves the rule. All black neighborhoods are, are redlined, but. Uh, Asian American neighborhoods on the West Coast are redlined, uh Latinx neighborhoods in the West are, are redlined. Uh there's a fair amount of anti-Semitism and, and targeting of redlining or yellow lining of of Jewish American neighborhoods. Um so uh it's pretty uh I mean that's the power of this is like it doesn't it doesn't really require uh much uh imagination to make sense of this and uh and it's not really up for debate what's going on here because it is so crystal clear which is one thing that makes it kind of a powerful tool for for advocacy and and for understanding this is because uh i don't care if you're a sixth grader or a um uh, like a policymaker who might uh I mean, I'll just be frank. Like a kind of let's say a policymaker on the right who uh, is dismissive of systemic racism, you can't deny the systemic racism of this of this history, and, and yeah, that's the power of it. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's good to hear that there's younger students involved as well. Just to to round out, what other projects are involved in American Panorama? What other maps?
1: Yeah, so there's. Uh, I'll tell you the ones I. But the really, it is the flagship of it is mapping inequality, and it gets. Uh, I wish some of our other projects got, you know, even a a, a bigger fraction of the traffic. Not even as much traffic as ma- as mapping inequality, um, but some of the there's lots, uh, and we and it's growing and growing. Uh, ones that I uh, think might be particularly interesting to uh, an audience that's interested in urban history. There's a companion we did called Renewing Inequality, uh, which looks, uh, if mapping inequality looks at redlining in the 1930s, Renewing Inequality uh, explores uh, similar issues about race and inequality in another federal housing uh, and urban policy, uh, urban renewal during the 1950s, 1960s, uh, a tiny bit into the 70s. I mean, our data set is mostly 50 to 66. The urban renewal is 49 to 74. Um, And our approach to that was to map as many uh, federally funded urban renewal projects with a particular focus on uh, families that were displaced because between 50 and 66, the federal government um, kept and published data about this. And then uh, two racial categories that they used, white and non-white. So uh, it allows... Uh, an exploration at uh, both local level and at the national level in in terms of kind of the in the the uh, brunt of this program falling upon neighborhoods of color uh, in in particular the majority of families that are displaced are uh, were families of of color and, um, in all but a handful of cases uh, in cities. Across the United States, whether that be South, Northeast, Midwest, West, uh, families of color were far more likely to be displaced uh, and have their have their communities uh, wrecked by uh, by urban renewal. It's a complicated program because they, a lot of them did end up in better housing, whether that be public housing or or uh, by a relocation assistance some other place in the cities. Uh, so it, it is a, the politics of this, that program are, are pretty complicated, but that's that's a map I wish got as much attention as mapping equality. It doesn't because it doesn't, I don't think it has the textual element. That's what's so, that's what's so powerful about the mapping inequality. Uh, another, I'll mention two other uh, projects. One is uh, forced migration of enslaved people, which is essentially on the, Uh, domestic slave trade and the movement of uh, more than a million uh, enslaved individuals uh, around uh, the the antebellum south uh, in the half century before the civil war and i think it's the most uh, granular uh, cartographic picture we have of the domestic slave trade and and, and that that massive movement of people against their will and then finally uh, time, uh, time-wise, which is related to uh, mapping inequality, is a project called Photogrammer, which was a uh, a new version of a project that two of my colleagues, uh, Lauren Tilton and and uh, T- uh, Taylor Arnold, uh, they uh, produced, and we have released a new version of this project, and it's uh, a project that maps and visualizes a number of way the 170,000 photos that were produced as part of the Farm Security Administration programs So, Dorothea Lange, uh, Gordon Parks, you know, some of the great photographers in American history. Uh, and we uh, we provide a uh, number of ways to visualize and uh, dive into this incredible uh photographic archive of American life during the Great Depression and, and into the Second World War. So a, that's a handful of uh, examples. Of Those that, are uh, great. Of what we have. Yeah. yeah.
0: We talk a ton about urban renewal and Boston um, especially. So that w- I will.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, like Boston is like one big urban renewal project. I mean, you look at the urban renewal map and it's basically the, the center of the city, not all the villages, but yeah, it's, it's heavily. Uh, yeah.
0: Absolutely. um, so what are you uh, yourself working on at the moment, if you would like to share?
1: <laughs> oh, well, more maps. So we're working with a couple of colleagues on uh, on the map. Well, uh, at the university, we're so uh, a couple of colleagues of uh, mine of ours are interested in uh, international philanthropy uh that's not the right word um but uh fat, like the foundations of uh, rockefeller foundation ford foundation and and kind of development grants that were given during the course of the 20th century so we're we're producing a project to map those uh, and then we're working with a german scholar uh julius wilm uh who's a scholar of uh homesteading and we're doing a which i'm actually very really excited about this map it's a map of homesteading between the passage of the Homestead Act in 1862 uh, for a half century into the, the 1912. Um, and so we're mapping uh, where and when uh, homesteaders made claims and and patented their land. And uh, we're particularly trying to think about and map uh, the relationship between homesteading and uh, violence between white settlers or white, usually government forces, usually the army and uh, native peoples uh and uh this it's a complicated so i don't want to oversimplify this but the relationship between homesteading and dispossession of native peoples in the american west during the 19th century um, and then i'm doing work um with other colleagues uh on our uh, institutional history so uh right before i jumped on this with you i was working on a uh collection of uh oral histories uh, with mostly with uh, former alumni of color, mostly alumni of color, not entirely, but a, uh, an oral history collection that's uh, a number of colleagues uh, of mine have been producing um, to uh, revisit and think about the history of race at our institution. Um, so thinking about race locally, so a lot of work on. <laughs> I tend to have a lot of focus on on race, uh, so mapping equality is, is in keeping with that. Whether my uh, my interests are and um, happy to participate and be part of our local efforts to think about race at our institutions and reckon with it here. Um, And I'm very, very grateful to be uh, able to talk uh, about systemic racism, racist policies, and uh, contemporary inequalities in the U.S. So that's busy. I'm busy and uh, happy, happily busy, very, very happily busy. Thank
0: brady and this has been the ue podcast as always contact us at tufts at gmail.com to get involved thanks for listening and see you in two weeks